Amen. Make sure I'm squared away. All my OCD people, help me out here. Am I squared away? Anybody OCD? Just me? All right, well, that's not helpful. All right. Um, hey, it's good to be here. Uh, it's good to see you guys. good to be seen. If, if we're here, that means we're alive. So um, that's good news. Um, there's good news for all of us that woke up with breath in our lungs. And um, like that song says, there's a reality that whether you realize it or not, you depend on God for every breath. And my hope and prayer as a preacher of the Word, I haven't preached in a while, is that as a result of this message, that not only will I depend on the Lord more, but that you would as well. Um, just dealing with the reality that we're not all that. Uh, there's that phrase that goes around that says, you are enough. Uh, you, your sin is enough to, to, to pay the penalty for. That's about as enough as you are. But God is enough. And God is able to give us whatever we need today. And so this message, <clears throat> it's going to hit different for different people. That's what the Word of God does. The Bible says the Word of God is like a sharp edged sword. It cuts deep. Uh, and it cuts in precise ways. God has a, He's a master, uh, He's a skilled master when it comes to uh, sanctifying his people. So that's my prayer. I'm going to pray real quick to that end, and then I pray that God would bless this word. So, Father, we ask right now in the name of Jesus, our Lord, that we would draw closer to you, O God, as a result of the text today. God, thank you for the inspired text. Thank you that you've preserved it throughout the ages for us in 2023 to hear from and ponder on and then act upon. So I pray, God, that we would never grow weary in doing well, that our, our doing would never be in place of our being. It must start with us being filled uh, with your presence if we're going to make any kind of difference in this world. So I pray, God, you'd fill me, fill us with your spirit today to hear, to preach, to receive, and then to obey. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said, amen. All right. So this is actually a sermon that was scheduled uh, about a month ago, a little out of order. Uh, it's from Luke 3. Um, now we're in Luke 4 as a church, but I was studying this passage. Uh, it was on the preaching schedule about a month ago, and I woke up that Sunday morning, <clears throat> kind of like, I, almost like I feel now, with this allergies. I don't know if you know what it is, but when you get older, man, you got to deal with these things called allergies. Kids, one day you'll, you'll, you'll get there. And uh, I, I remember calling on Carl. I said, Carl, brother, it's 12 o'clock. I'm supposed to preach in a couple hours. Uh, I need you to preach for him. And by God's grace, uh, Carl called his clone up. Carl has, Carl has a clone who always has a sermon. And he was ready to preach. And so Carl came in and did his two-part on the, uh, the baptism of Jesus and same baptism. So that was good. But we said, hey, let's make sure not to gloss over this. And um, we'll come back to it. And so I remember when Carl preached on the Trinity, he said it's one of the hardest passages in all the Bible. It's one of the most complicated, controversial things in essence. Topic. Okay. And as I started studying this and digging in, I was like, wow. This passage at face value is kind of dull and repetitive, but man, when you start plugging in what's going on in this, this, this passage, it's caused a lot of controversy, especially in modern Christianity. Um, scriptural skeptics, Bart Ehrman, Richard Dawkins, other atheists, try to use this as the linchpin to why Christianity can't be true. And so I don't think there's any atheists in here today. Maybe they are online. Uh, if you're an atheist and, and you're watching online, we welcome you. We invite you to study God's Word with us. Um, but I want to tell you that um, more than the controversy of this book, this passage, it's an, the inspired Word of God. And so we're going to be talking about the genealogy of Jesus from the Gospel of Luke. And I will tell you that a lot of people, when you get to your daily reading, we could stop right there and just say, there it is. Come on. Where do, you, where do they need to sit? Let's, let's accommodate and make sure we get them. 
All the, if there's anyone watching online, they're like, what just happened? Did Jesus return? Um, the Flockies are here. For, I don't know if people watch online. I'm not, I'm not online. I'm not on my phone. But yeah, welcome, um, Phineas. Good to see you, buddy. Welcome. Um, yeah, anyways, I don't even know where I was. Yeah, um, yeah, does it even matter anymore? <laughs> like, should we put this off another month? Um, yeah, all right, atheist. Um, what's my time? My tie-in. I thought you said my time. I'm like, I'm probably going to go over. Um, yeah, most atheists that I've found never had kids. Two, there's two common things I've found with most hardened atheists. Most, not all. Most of them came out of Catholicism or some very legalistic form of Christianity. And the other ones, they never had kids. So there's something about looking at a kid in his eyes and realizing, I made this, I mean, God made this through me. It's crazy. So anyway. Are genealogies important? Okay. Show of hands. When you get to the genealogy in, in Scripture, do you just like, okay, on to the next thing. Okay, raise your hand if that's you. Okay, raise your hand if that's not you. You're lying. I'm just going to tell you, you're lying. No. Most most sane people get to the genealogies and they're like, so-and-so begot so-and-so begot so-and-so begot so-and-so begot so-and-so begot so-and-so. And you're like, all right. What's after that? But I want to I want to encourage us and remind us today that genealogies are important. Why? Historical record, yeah, that's one answer. But the primal answer of why it's important is because it's in God's Word. And 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is breathed out. It's all been inspired by God. And it's profitable to teach us, to correct us, to sharpen us, to reproof us. Right? So can the genealogy... Sharpen, correct, reproof, and train us for righteousness? Yeah, God said it would, so here we go. Let's go ahead and stand. And we're going to read together from Luke chapter 3, verses 23 through 38. The genealogy of Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 3, verse 23 through 38. Jesus, when he began his ministry was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathis, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Matthias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Ezra, the son of Nagai, the son of Math, the son of Matthias, son of Simeon, the son of Joseph, the son of Jodah, the son of Jonan, the son of Resa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shelalatil, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kasim, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliezer, son of Joram, the son of Mathis, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Meleah, the son of Mena, the son of Matatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashah, the son of Amenabad, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Sarad, the son of Ruth, the son of Peleg, the son of Aber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalathir, the son of Canaan, the son of Enoch, the son of Seth, 
the son of Adam, the son of God. Did you, did you know there's a son of Admin? I mean, he must have been the son of Satan. I hate administration. All right. And anyways, how come no one's ever named? I don't ever hear anyone naming the son Arfaxid. The next, whoever, whoever has the next kid there, name the son Admin or Arfaxid. Or Artie. Good stuff. All right, let's pray. Should I pray? I like we need the Lord's help. Lord, thank you uh, the Flockies are with us. Thank you that Phineas is here. Uh, thank you that you have miraculously given him life and preserved him. And through uh, doctors, natural and through supernatural gods, uh, you have helped Kristen and Aaron be the parents you've called them to be. You know, it's been very difficult leading to this point, but we rejoice that they're here with us today. We also rejoice that we have your word. We have the inspired word of God that is good for us. It's awesome for correction. And uh, it's a historical account. And so there's many wonderful things that we'll learn. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would work in each of our hearts, uh, that we might become more needy and dependent on you. We thank you that when we need you, we get you. And when we got you, we have all we need. And we just say thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys may be seated. All right. I feel like we all deserve a cookie for reading that. That's a foreshadow. If you all are, there might be some cookies at the end of service. That was a treat for, for reading the genealogy. But it is, it's weird, like, you guys were laughing, I heard people snickering. Um, I was like, I felt like I was gonna lose it and start laughing halfway through. I didn't. We did it together. It's an awkward thing to read the sons of, the sons of, the sons of. And, um, there is a, um, more than just a problem of reading it, there is a true problem um, of the genealogies in the text. It's not a real problem, but it's a pseudo-problem. When you study the, the genealogy in Matthew, and you study the one in Luke, you'll see that there are some differences. And um, they are different in that Matthew's book was primarily written to Jews, so he's given a uh, more of a Judaic understanding of the genealogies so that Jesus could be rightfully crowned king of the Jews, king of David, uh, the son of David. And then, if you know Luke, remember, does anyone remember the original title of the sermon series? Besides Christian, because he, he worked on the Canva. Do you remember the original title of the sermon series of Luke? Carl, do you remember? <laughs> Alright, what is it? Is that it? Savior, I thought it was the faithful God, faithful God for all people. Okay, that's what I remember. So apparently none of us know it. But but the writer Luke was writing so that all people would know that Jesus was the Son of God for all people for all time. So these two um these two genealogies are different. Um they differ in these ways. Matthew follows the line of David's son Solomon, while Luke follows the line of Nathan, who was also the son of David. And the end result is there's two different distinct genealogies. Listen. I probably studied the differences for like 10 hours and I was trying to figure out like what's the best way to unpack it. And you'll see that I'll give you um, kind of the three most common accepted philosophies of these scripture. But I'm going to tell you today, I'm not going to give you all of it. There's so much. It, it's so deep. And honestly, the best of the best scholars do not even agree on why these things are different. And so I'm not going to spend a ton of time there, but I'm going to give you a, a little bit. Uh, to help you understand, and really help you understand the deeper meaning, hopefully. Um, some argue that either Matthew or Luke got it wrong, that they created or borrowed a genealogy in order to provide Jesus with a le- legitimate answer to, or they accused later Christians for artificially creating a genealogy to provide Jesus with a Davidic lineage, lineage after the fact. Uh, neither of those are true, but this is what the famous atheist Richard Dawkins in his book, The God Delusion, says about these genealogies, he says this. He's talking about you. He says, there are many unsophisticated Christians out there who think it's absolute, that it absolutely is necessary so, who take the Bible very seriously indeed as a literal and accurate record of history and hence as evidence supporting their religious beliefs. Did these people never open the book that they believe is the literal truth? Why don't they notice those glaring contradictions Shouldn't a literalist worry about the fact that Matthew 
traces Jesus' descendant from King David via 28 intermediate generations, while Luke has 41 generations. Worse, there is almost no overlap in the names on the two lists. In any case, if Jesus was really born of a virgin, Joseph's ancestry is irrelevant and cannot be used to fulfill on Jesus' behalf the Old Testament prophecy that the Messiah should be descended from David. So this is his, uh, his linchpin for saying the Bible is not an error. These are the so-called discrepancies. Jesus' genealogy is given in two places, like we said earlier, Matthew 1 and here in Luke 3, 23-38. Matthew traces the genealogy from Jesus to Abraham, and Luke traces the genealogy from Jesus to who? Adam, and then to God. There is good reason to believe that Matthew and Luke are in fact tracing entirely different genealogies. For example, Matthew gives Joseph's father as Jacob, while Luke gives Joseph's father as Heli. Matthew traces the line through David's son Solomon, while Luke traces it through David's son Nathan. In fact, between David and Jesus, the only names in the genealogies have in common is Sheliel, Kiel, and Zerubbabel. Okay? So some point to these differences as evidence of the errors in the Bible. However, the Jews were meticulous record keepers, especially in regards to genealogy. So why then does Luke have 76 or 77 names, including God? And then why does Matthew have 42? Why are different descendants names, even from David? Why is this? Well, here's the three most common explanations of these two genealogies. Um, these are very technical responses, so bear with me. I do a lot of reading. Um, the first, the first common reason that Christians will give for these two genealogies being inerrant yet different is this: that one genealogy is royal or legal, and the other one is a physical genealogy. One possible explanation for the two different genealogies is that Matthew presents a royal or legal genealogy while Luke gives a physical or actual genealogy. In other words, Matthew lists the official line of the Davidic kings, not Jesus' actual ancestors. His point is to prove that Joseph is related to that line. In this view, Luke would be giving us the actual physical descendants. In other words, a genealogy in the way we're accustomed to thinking about it. So Luke was more physical, more natural, and Matthew's was more of the trying to affirm the Davidic line. This may help provide a theological point, but it doesn't solve the larger problem created by having two genealogies, simply this. Can Joseph have two fathers? This is the second common thing. They say Joseph had two fathers. How can someone have two fathers? That's a fair question. It's not physically possible. However, there are two reasons the text can actually be read this way. First, some suggest that Mary had no brothers to carry on her father's name at her marriage. So Heli, Joseph's father, according to Luke, adopted Joseph as his own son. This would give Joseph two genealogies, his own genealogy and Mary's genealogy. Second, it's also possible to read Joseph's genealogy in context of the Old Testament law of Leverite marriage. Leverite marriage is described in Deuteronomy 25.5 as this, If brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duties of the brother-in-law. In other words, the law states that the brother of a man who died should marry his brother's widow to produce heirs for him. In this case, Eli, Joseph's father according to Luke's genealogy, and Jacob, Joseph's father according to Matthew's genealogy, were either brothers or half-brothers. When one died, the other one married his widow, producing Joseph and his offspring. This would leave Joseph with two fathers, both Eli and Jacob, one a natural father and the other a legal father. From the text, we can't tell which one is his natural father or which one is his legal father. The important point is that this could explain why Joseph might have two fathers and therefore two distinct genealogies. Now here's the third, which is the most commonly accepted view. I've probably lost half of you guys already. Okay. You're in the half that I've kept. The third is Luke's genealogy is actually Mary's. And by the way, I'll post a link to a good article I read from Answers in Genesis where I pretty much copy and pasted this. I, I tried to find the most basic. There's really there's actually like eight views, but these are the three most common. <clears throat> so a lot of people think Luke's genealogy is actually 
through marriage. The simplest solution is that we have genealogies of both Jesus through Joseph and Matthew and then through Mary and Luke. In this case, Luke gives us Mary's genealogy while Matthew gives us Joseph's genealogy. This makes good sense since Luke's birth narrative focuses on Mary. Luke tells the story from her perspective. This proposal is sometimes linked to the judgment pronounced against the line of Solomon by Jeremiah who prophesied that no descendant of Jehoiakim or his son Jehoiakim would sit on the throne of David. Jesus avoided this judgment because he was the legal descendant through Mary rather than the physical descendant of David through Joseph. Matthew, on the other hand, follows Joseph's side of the story. Matthew's narrative moves through the dreams that Joseph had. One problem with the suggestion is that throughout Luke's birth narrative, he stresses that Joseph is a descendant of David. He never mentions Mary's Davidic descent. So despite Luke's emphasis on Mary and his birth narrative, it would be surprising if his genealogy is Mary. Okay. So you're, you're telling me that the most commonly accepted one is still questionable. Yes. Um, I think over the past six to nine months, I've developed uh, somewhat of an unhealthy love affair for Archie Sproul. Uh, as I study a lot of what he's had to say about this Luke, he's a great preacher, and his stuff is really encouraging. I think he does some of the most thoughtful application, illustration, exposition of any modern-day preacher, even though he's passed away. Uh, sadly, R.C. Sproul says he doesn't even know. So if R.C. Sproul's in the camp of, I think it's Mary's, but I'm not sure, and many other people that are way smarter than myself, Pastor Carl, Adele, and anyone else in this room still don't know the exact reason, I think we're okay to say, we'll find out when we get to heaven. And I don't think we care when we get there. Okay? So instead of asking the question, how, or why was this, or, or what was this written, I think it's always good to ask the question, why? Why? Why was this genealogy written? <clears throat> There's three basic principles in hermeneutics. Everybody say hermeneutics. Hermeneutics. It's the art and science of interpretation. There's three com there's a lot of there's a lot of tools of hermeneutics, but any simple layman, any simple pastor, if I throw myself in that category, could think about these three questions when trying to understand scripture. Who wrote it? Who was it written to? And what was the occasion? Okay, everybody stay with me. Who wrote it? Who was it written to? And what was the occasion? I just got done talking to Alex Brius before uh, church, and we're talking about a book called Amelia Bedelia, something like that. Amelia Bedelia. And I was, it started because me and Amelia were out here looking at the guys playing baseball. And he said, man, he said, I remember when you first came to America, or something, I'm making the story up a little bit, but he said, the book Amelia Bedelia, uh, it talks about stealing a bait in baseball. And we know it's good to steal a bait, right? But you can't go into a store and steal the base, right? You couldn't, you couldn't walk into Dick's Sporting Goods and grab a base and walk out and be like, I'm just stealing a base, right? It's against the law. So, so when you, when you understand the occasion, who is the author and who is the audience, it's super important. Okay? So, so instead of like listening to Richard Dawkins or Bart Ehrman, who really don't know what they're talking about, who've been disproven by many Christians, um, Let's, let's look at the word and let's try to understand what Luke. We know Luke wrote it. We know his audience was who? Who? Everyone. Matthew was the apostle to the to the Jews, and Luke was the apostle to, or he was the the author to the Gentiles. And there's even in Paul's second missionary journey. Guess who Paul was hanging with? Luke. And we know Paul is truly the apostle to the Gentiles. So Luke was writing to the Gentiles. And I'm going to give you a couple points and um, about the why. Why why is this genealogy important? And Adele kind of stole my thunder, but our faith is rooted in history. So if you're taking notes, here's the first point. I don't have any words on the screen behind me. But our faith is rooted in history. Okay? Our faith is historical. Now, that, that might not seem very important, like we could come up with some weird religion in here where we worship the clone of Carl because his clone doesn't have to sleep 
And he, he can accomplish all kinds of wonderful things. Rebecca, like, you might actually have a religion with Carl's clone, or wish there was a Carl clone. And, and it would be a great religion, and we'd help people, because we don't need sleep. We all worship the clone, and he does great things. But, but that religion would have started on, what's today's date? April 16th, 2023. There's no history of that. Like, we started, that's what makes, we start, and I'm not like, I don't want to go on a tangent about a lot of modern Christian stuff. There's a lot of modern Christian stuff that has no historical background. And not, not all of it's bad. I'm not saying it's all bad. It's like, we got to check everything. we got to check everything. Even as, uh, we're, we're credo Baptists. That's probably listen to R.C. Sproul. R.C. Sproul is a pedo Baptist. He'll tell you that we didn't, people didn't really start doing baptism by immersion like we do until around the 14 or 1500s. Carl's taking his head. But we need to check that stuff. We need to investigate. But listen, this is given here so that we could investigate. That the people that, that God was giving the scripture to could investigate. These genealogies were meticulous records kept by the Jews that these were real people that have been proven to be true over the history of time. And here we are. I don't know who Admin was or why anyone would name their kid Admin. It's a real dude. And so these are real people. Christianity is not based upon someone's imagination. Right? You start studying Islam and you hear about Muhammad going off in a cave and having revelations and shaking and foam's coming out of his mouth and he says all these things and then those things change and those things change and, and a lot of it's a bunch of gibberish, actually. It's not actually historical and it can't be proven. But, but we have a religion that's based on reality. It's rooted in history. It's helpful for us to remember that there was a multitude of believers who come before us. They faced some of the same questions and some of the same problems that we face, and yet they came through it okay. The writer of Hebrews mentions this in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11. That chapter is kind of a genealogy of faithful people. It's a chapter of faithful men and women who went before us despite all the odds and remained faithful to God. Genealogies remind us that we are not alone. That our faith is rooted in thousands of years and millions of people who've gone before us. Isn't that awesome? Second reason genealogies are important, this genealogy is important, is because it reminds us that God Himself uses people to make history. God uses people to make history. This is an obvious conclusion, yet an overlooked fact. God uses people to make His history. God could do whatever He wants, however He pleases, and yet He chooses to use people named admin in our fact system. Cellular. And, I mean, just these are people. Anybody ever studied your, um, your own genealogy? Raise your hand if you've ever done like a genealogy test. Carl, kind of. Everybody's kind of, Kaylin, you actually done one? Ancestry. Listen, do you know how, um, this is so cool. Um, Mormons have some crazy beliefs. So the Mormons have some absolutely insane beliefs. Do you know Mormons, uh, they baptize live people in place of dead people? Did you know that? Uh, I met a guy on a plane, uh, when I was on my way to Tetons last year. He was a Mormon. He was funny. He was a cool dude. He was like joking about it. He's like, yeah, I go to the temple and they baptize me about 20 times. I'm doing my rights for all the people who died throughout our history. And I'm like, what? Like, where do you get this information from? And he said, you know, the Mormon church, if you didn't know this, Ancestry.com, DNA.com, 23andMe, like a lot of these are owned by the Mormons. And they started it, and they're the ones that have really developed the technology to trace back people's lineage. Why? Because if you're going to be part of the Mormon church, Shekinah, I need to get you so we can baptize old admin over here who might have died in his sin. Or, you know, they, they literally trace back people in ancient Egypt and they baptize the people in the Mormon church because they're hoping that those people's sins will be forgiven through their baptism. I baptize you well, it's, 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 it's going to give them a greater hope. 
Maybe the Lord will look on your baptism of them on their behalf. It's just weird. It's really strange. Yeah, it's, I mean, and it gets weird. There's like magic underwear and other stuff. Um, okay, so I actually studied. Actually, I didn't study. My dad studied our genealogy. And, you know, I, guys, I was a heathen. Y'all know me. <laughs> like, rebel to the core. You know, I was I was a wild dude. And my dad shares with me my genealogy, and it was like this light bulb goes off. Wouldn't you know that Brian Ottinger is the son of Richard Ottinger, who's the son of Elmer Ottinger, who's the son of Riley Ottinger, who's the son of David Jr., Ottinger Jr., who's the son of David Ottinger Sr., who was the son of Peter Ottinger, who planted a church called St. John's Lutheran Church in Greenville, Tennessee, 1811. He was a German reformed. He was a reformed guy. I was, I was predestined to be reformed. Sorry, Levi. That was... My great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, he was a German reform guy. I was predestined for this. But it was like, man, when I, when I heard that, it was like, and I don't, you know, I'm not trying to get all wonky and stuff, but it's like, man, part of my, part of my DNA has church planting in it. You know, and I'm not saying that like, you know, my kids have to be church planters or, you know, it doesn't always work out that way, but, but man, isn't that pretty cool? I kind of got a little chub up thinking about it. And, uh, Sad to say, I went looked. I was as I was doing this research, I looked them up. I thought I'd like to go there sometime. And they had old Pastor Terry on there, and I don't even know if it's like a what the the Lutheran Synod is anymore. You tell me, is it, do they affirm? I don't know much about the Lutheran Church, but I'm sure old uh, even you know Richard or Peter, he would have known Pastor Terry was at the helm. You know that German Reform guy. They're like, what's going on? He's rolled over to his grave. But he'd be happy that his great, 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 great grandson helped plant a church in Charlotte. So my question is, based on this, if God uses people, and everyone here is a person, how do you want to be remembered? How do you want your name to be remembered? What legacy are you going to leave? Like, because we can all say, oh, I want to be remembered as like the blah, 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 blah. Well, hey, if your life don't match up with that, then at your funeral, people will be saying, oh man, that, geez, that dude, man, you know, he's a good dude, but yeah, he really had a temper, man. He, he, he was all, man, he had a lot of, you know, vices. He was a troubled man, you know. And so my question is, how do you want to be remembered? Ten out of ten of us are going to pass away unless Jesus comes back, takes us home. And so how do you want to be remembered? I don't know much about Peter Ottinger. But I know in 1811 he helped establish the St. John's Lutheran Church in Greenville. Pretty cool thing. I don't I don't know really anything else about him except for that. So you better believe in 100 years or 200 years they're going to have probably 3D holographic DNA tests, and someone's going to be able to look at your life and say, "This is my lineage. How then will you be remembered? How do you want to be remembered?" I'd be remiss if I didn't um, if I didn't share that today is actually the official six-year anniversary of our church. Yeah, yeah. Someone gasped. <gasps> you know, most churches, most church plans don't make it past three years. And there's been a couple moments the past couple years where we were we were questioning. Yeah, we should we are we going to? But uh, I just want to take a second and acknowledge the many family names. I'm not going to name them. Specifically, but there's many family names um, in our church's genealogy have, that have helped keep this church alive and active. So if you're in here today and you're an active member, those of you watching online, your names are important to the life of our church. And your names are actually on a list. We do a thing called a membership role. So if you're not a member and you'd like to become one, um, Pastor Carl and I, actively try to pray for you guys and help all of our members. Um, but I just wanted to take a second to honor all the past and present, uh, or excuse me, present and past members. Think about the Stanford. Uh, some of the guys early on, some of you guys don't even know, were instrumental in helping us plant this church. Chris Cook, and y'all never heard his name. Uh, the Werner, 
They were around in early days. And so on and so forth. And, and God continues to bring people. And so thank you. I just want to say thank you. Thank you, Jim. So your name's part of this genealogy record of our church. Um, the next reason that genealogy is important is because it teaches us that God is orderly. God is a God of order. Um, Psalm 56 says that God keeps a record of how many times you've cried. So, so God doesn't just keep track of the names, but God knows every detail of your life, Aiden. He knows every time you've cried. Psalm 56 says. Malachi 3.16 says that those that feared the Lord spoke often to one another, and the Lord listened to them and wrote what was being said in a book of remembrance. When you talk about God to one another, God listens to what you're saying about Him. He writes it down. That's weird. Like I read that, I had to read it again. I was like, really? Any, any of you guys ever walked into your uh, kid's room while they're on Fortnite and hear them talk about how awesome their dad is? Like they're like, my dad's so cool. He's a great guy. But my mom's so cool. Has that ever happened? Is that just my house? Listen, that would warm my heart. To hear my kids speaking well of me to their parents. And it warms God, God the Father's heart when he hears his children witnessing, even if it's a one-on-one conversation. And you can take great joy in that because there's a lot of times that we share with people and it just seems like they're like, you can't see me. Like, I don't want to, like, I don't want no part of that. And God's over there smiling like, that's my son. That's my daughter. Oh, I love him. Listen to him talk about me. They get it. And so, man, let that be your motivation. Like, you're not, yeah, we want to see people converted, but, man, we want to please our Father. We want to glorify Him. We go out, we passed out Bibles last Wednesday, and uh, Andrew Ingham was with me. Clearly. Didn't recognize you all this up. And I was like, we each had a Bible, and we're walking through the park, and I was like, what are we going to do? He's like, I'm following your lead. I was like, I'm really nervous. So am I. And I said, we just got to do it. We started looking around. Everyone's enjoying their time. We don't want to interrupt people. So we found these, this mom and her two kids. We walking, walking by them and we just stopped and talked. Asked them their name. Asked them they wanted a Bible. They said yes. And uh, we prayed for them. And that pleased the Lord. He was, he was looking at us like, look at my kids go. Yeah. It's like when you, you're, you're pushing your kids for the first time on a bike without, uh, training wheels. And one day you'll do this with Phineas. And you're going to push him, and you're going to let him go, and you're going to see him, and you're like, yeah! And the very next moment, you're like, oh man, I hope he doesn't wreck! I don't have a helmet on him! So, think about that. God's keeping a record of our witnessing. The Bible also tells us that God keeps a record of the things that we do with our body, whether good or bad. There are books in heaven that record your every word. Every thought and every deed. Now that's encouraging for the believer because we know that there's, there's no sin in our life that God remembers. The Bible teaches that God basically, as he, well, he remembers it, but he forgives us as far as the, our sin is from the east to the west. But we need to be mindful, Christians. Like we need to be mindful. When you're in your room, you know, you're in the shower, you're in the car, you're in the quiet place, just you, wife's not around, kids not around, friends not around, no one else around, you know, and maybe I'll, I'll, I'll look at something and then, oh, I may I'll look at something else and next thing you know, you're, you're doing inappropriate things, having inappropriate thoughts. God knows them. And he's keeping a record book. He's not like Santa Claus, he's not making the list, he's naughty and nice, you know, because the reality is we're all naughty. We all deserve more than soul. We deserve the wrath of God, but God gives us grace, but He still knows what we do. And then there's a better list that's described in Revelation 3.5. There's a, there's a list that contains all the names who have eternal life, all those who have faith in Christ. That book is called The Lamb's Book of Life. Genealogy is important because they teach us that God is orderly. He keeps a record of things. He's going to keep a record of everyone who professes in the name of Jesus. This is the call for us, church. 
God is holy and just. Psalm 89.14 says, Righteousness and justice are found on the foundation of your throne. Mercy and truth go before your face. In civil law, a good judge must punish, punish crime. If he turns a blind, blind eye to injustice, he is no longer a good judge, but he's corrupt. Our God is not a corrupt judge. God must punish, must punish sin. His word says that the wages of sin is death. First John 3, 4 says sin is a transgression of the law. Each one of us has broken his law. If we look at the Ten Commandments, we can look at three. We've all lied, we've all stolen something, and we've all committed idolatry. We put others things in front of God. Therefore, we are deserving of his death. We have all sinned and fall short of his glorious standard of perfection. You deserve his wrath. Carl, you deserve his wrath. Jamie, you deserve God's wrath. But the Bible also teaches that God is rich in mercy to all that call upon his name. Ephesians 2, 4 says, But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, did not spare his only son. Jesus satisfied eternal justice and then rose from the dead. We celebrated two weeks ago, defeating death. Hundreds saw him after his resurrection. Jesus fulfilled all the prophecies about the promised Savior written in the Holy Scriptures hundreds of years before his birth. But just as we cannot earn a gift, we cannot earn eternal life by our good works. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone boast. God offers eternal life through Jesus Christ alone. Richard Dawkins, who is a big atheist takedown, he can be forgiven. He's, is he dead now? He's still alive? We're going to pray that Richard Dawkins is he's um, There was another famous atheist who just died. Um, Who's the other big name of 2010? Christopher Hitchens. He's passed away, right? So, we don't know, you know, what truly happened to his soul, but those blasphemers and mockers of God and His Word, God can save them. Which leads me to the most important point of this whole genealogy. Is Jesus is the faithful God of all people. And... Verse 23, it says, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son of, and then it goes on. Luke is doing a really great job of showing us through this genealogy that before Jesus begins his life, before he begins his miracles, before he would receive his persecution, before he would receive his unholy prosecution, before His death on the cross, before His rising from the grave, before His ascending to the right hand of the Father, before Luke lays out the story of Jesus Christ through this narrative, he wants you to see this truth, that Jesus did it for anyone and everyone who would call on His name. He traces the genealogy back to Adam. The Bible teaches that in Adam, who was the first committer of sin, that we all have now inherited a sinful nature. And in Adam we all die. Through one man's curse, we've all been cursed. And so, so he's, what he's showing you here in this genealogy, is everything is pointed back through Adam and then ultimately to God. There was a controversy. Anybody drink Bud Light? Besides Hayden? Hayden raised his hand. Okay. Man, there's this controversy this past week. Uh, Dylan Mulvaney or McCubby? I wrote it wrong. Okay, Dylan. Okay. Not Dylan Quintana. Okay, so there's this huge controversy this past week. Bud Light was supposed to be this all-American beer. Gave a commemorative six-pack. This Dylan Mulvaney guy who thinks he's a little girl, dresses like a girl, he's like a 25-year-old man, gave him his own six-pack with his face on it, and and he posted online of how much he loved Bud Light, and blah, blah, blah. And all the conservatives, like, raised heck. Like, man, we're going to cancel Bud Light. <laughs> That's the stuff you, you know, anyways, I'm not going to 
I drank a lot of that stuff when I didn't know the Lord. So, and it was like the worst beer. Like, people actually still drink. I couldn't believe people still drank Bud Light. But, but beyond that, there was this, like this righteous indignation. Like, we're going to cancel Bud Light and, and we're going to cancel this Dylan McClaney, whatever. Right? And, and man, I'm just telling you, like, listen. Do we celebrate unrighteousness? Hex to the no. Never. But, but you, if you don't see that your sin has made you just as lost as Dylan McVaney, is that the most? I don't know. The whole thing's gonna be lost. I should have put a picture of it. If you, if you think somehow you're better off, or you, man, I, man, look at me, I'm pretty good, like I, no, listen, you are just as sinful and as wicked without Christ as Dylan Mulvaney is. Is that right? And, and what happens in Christianity is we, we've borrowed our tactics from the world. We live in a cancel culture. Okay? And so what we do is instead of canceling the problem, we cancel the person. Instead of canceling the problem, we cancel the person. All those Christians who canceled Bud Light, like if, if you were to poll those people, if they're actually Christians, say, how many of you guys prayed for Dylan? You know? I've said it here many times. Like Joe Biden is an easy target, and I mean, I, I, I'm with you guys. Like I laugh at like some of his stuff, like shaking air. Like I laugh at that stuff, and I have to be reminded, like that dude is is he's headed for hell apart from Jesus. And one of the things I said to Andrew Ingram, I think it was Andrew, maybe it was Dylan. We were in the park, and we were kind of being a little hesitant about evangelizing. And I just said, imagine if every single person here was on fire. Like, literally like flames. Like burning. Their skin. You could smell their skin burning. And we had a hose. And when we had a nozzle. All we had to do was turn that nozzle on. We could save them. Like, what would we do? Would we say, oh man, those people, man, like, they're drinking Bud Light with Dylan McVinney's face on it. No, we man, we I hope that we would go in there and turn the hose full blast and we'd save their lives. And that's that and I'm speaking to me, man. Like I, I cancel people. I've been canceled, right? Some of you guys know some of the stories. Like people cancel me, some people canceled you. Like we need to be praying for, for Hitchens. We need to be praying for Dawkins. We need to be praying for, for our atheist friends. We need to be praying for our Mormon friends. We need to be praying for transgender people. Because this genealogy teaches us one thing, is that everything is rooted back to Adam. And in Adam, we all die apart from God. That's why this genealogy is so important. Jesus died for every type of person. So speaking of lists, speaking of people, who have you written off? Who have you written off? Who have you written off personally? Sometimes I get accused of preaching the same message over and over. It's like, man, this, the whole scripture just—it's always about forgiveness, and redemption, and reaching the lost. I don't know what else to preach. It's all I see. But who else? Who have you written off? Like, who who in your life is on fire, and their skin is starting to boil, and you got a you got a nozzle. And you can save them from their anguish. And you're saying, nah, man, like, I've been hurt. This person's wicked. They're ungodly. They, man, they've canceled me. They've said stuff. I'm going to withhold this water from them. Like, how ungodly is that? You want to be that person, or do you want to be the person as Malachi 3.16 that God looks on and says, wow, look at them sharing the gospel with the person they know that hates them. Providing living water to the person who's in anguish. Who is that person? Write that person down. Pray for that person. Reach out to that person. And maybe there's people in your life you don't. You're like, I don't even have that kind of problem. I haven't written anyone off. Well, have you shared with everybody you know? Like, because if you're not sharing the gospel with people, what you're saying is, I'm okay with you burning to a crisp and perishing for all eternity. Like, shame on you. Shame on me. Woe to us 
if we're the kind of Christians that are filled with rooms full of people who are on fire and headed to hell, and we're just saying, I'm okay, man. I got other stuff to do. We have the hope. We have the cure. Like, let's get active, church. Let's continue to be active. We're going out, I don't know, for the next foreseeable future every Wednesday. We're going to Reedy Creek. And Andrew, you'll be there with me. And me and you will be like not wanting to do it. But I, but I want that imagery to be fresh in our minds. That people are lost and dying and headed to hell apart from the grace of God. Which we are partakers of. It's the message God's given us. He's called us to be reconcilers. Like, what are we doing with it? So, let's end this sermon with remembering who we are in Christ and then reminding each other, like Luke, that, the, that the, and through this genealogy of Christ, all people can be made new. You guys pray with me? Lord, we lift up Dylan Mulvaney. We lift up Richard Dawkins. We lift up Mormons. We lift up people in other false religions, cults. Uh, we thank You, Lord, that Your grace is sufficient to cover all sin. God, I think about Richard Dawkins and I, I can't help but think about the Apostle Paul. A mocker and a scoffer of the church and yet became a trophy of grace. And so we pray for those who are far from You, Lord. Think about my friend Damon. We all know people who despise You and Your Word, despise the Word of the Lord, but God, You are good and You're awesome to save. You saved us. You can save them. And so we ask God that You would help renew our vision for evangelism, that we would see people as human souls who are perishing, and that we have the solution, we have the hope. And even for the person in here who's maybe deathly afraid to share the gospel, Lord, I pray that you would start to strengthen them and remind them that you've called us to be faithful and and you will bear the fruit. You will do the work. So I thank you for uh, the ability to worship together. Pray for all those over the past six years who've helped keep this church alive through finances, through um, serving, through their presence their gifts. I pray, God, that you would help sustain us, Lord. But not only, we don't just want to survive, we want to thrive. We want to see lost people come to know you, Jesus. We want to see this church grow through evangelism, through discipleship, as we are committed to the Great Commission. So help us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.